Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Well, it is a pure joy to get to be with you all. We're huge fans of Southeastern Seminary. Uh, and it's a joy to have Daniel at Brook Hills serving alongside uh, the mission and the saints there. Uh, speaking of following up with, uh, with David Platt, there was a couple that came to, uh, to our service over the weekend. They came up and introduced themselves at the end. And uh, they said, we just moved here yesterday from Arizona. We've been listening to David's teaching for years and it's just been such a blessing to us. And I just had to stop him right there and say, do you guys have any family in the area? And they said, no. And I said, do you have jobs? And uh, they said, no, we're having interviews. And I said, you do know that David's not here anymore. He's, he's in Richmond, Virginia. And I was really hoping that it wasn't breaking news to them in that particular moment. Thankfully, I breathed a sigh of relief when they actually said, no, no, we, we knew he wasn't here, but we still just love what the faith family's doing here. So that's a relief. But when people do come up and say, you know, if I say I'm serving at the Church of Brook Hills, and if they say, oh, that's David Platt's church, I pretty much just say yes. Uh, it's just, <laughs> it's, it's the fastest way uh, to move on. But it is, it is a pure joy to be with you all. We're huge fans of uh, this seminary and of faculty members of the seminary and uh, some of the finest brothers and sisters that we have at our church and even on our staff have been trained here. So it's a delight to be here. I was telling my family yesterday morning when we woke up and I said, guys, y'all need to pray for me because I'm flying out this afternoon uh, and I'm going to speak, get the privilege of speaking at Southeastern Seminary. And I said, y'all remember Dr. Aiken came in, he spoke at Brook Hills last year and uh, one of our teenagers said, Wait, Dr. Aiken invited you? Um, so people wonder why I'm so humble. Uh, anyway, 2 Thessalonians. Go ahead and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Not too long ago, it was about a year ago, I think, I came across an article in the Huffington Post. It grabbed my attention. The title of it was this, Why the World is Spinning into Crisis everywhere. And it listed a number of various catastrophes and things that were swelling and emerging in, in the world at the time, several of which are still active issues right now and some which have gone from bad to worse at this time. But even with that article talking about the world spinning into crisis and how the world looks terribly unmanageable these days is what the article went on to say. And yet it didn't even mention anything about some of the other concerns that we might have as believers, the 58 million unborn babies who were, have been murdered in the womb over the past four 43 years since the Roe v. Wade decision. Didn't mention anything of a report that was submitted to the United Nations back in 2013, which found, quote, 100,000 Christians are violently killed in relation to their faith every year. And so it seems the world that we live in, we can't go a day without bumping into brokenness, without bumping into injustice and evil and rampant, seemingly increasing moral confusion in our culture. So how do we remain faithful to Christ in the world that we've got around us? And not only just personally, how do we remain faithful to Christ, but how can we be hope-filled ministers 
ambassadors of reconciliation in a world like this? How can we effectively and ongoingly, perseveringly show Christ to this world, share Christ with this world, despite the pushback that is happening in our culture and in other cultures around the world? Enter 2 Thessalonians. These kinds of questions are being answered. Paul wants to strengthen hope in the church. He wants to fuel mission among these believers and he's gonna do both of those things, strengthen hope and fuel mission by focusing on something that might seem to be completely disconnected from real life, namely the return of Jesus Christ. He presses that home into the life of the church, into the faith and fuel of the mission of the church. So I'm, I'm gonna try to draw out three ties, three themes that Paul weaves together right here in chapter one, in the early goings of chapter one, and how that comes together for suffering, salvation, and mission. That's the three points, suffering, salvation, and mission, beginning with suffering. And we know just from reading the New Testament that suffering is par for the course, Suffering, persecution in the lives of believers is evidence of belonging, as a matter of fact. That's a recurring theme throughout the New Testament. The Apostle Peter writes these words. These will probably sound familiar, 1 Peter 4.13. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter's saying, this is par for the course. This is life in this world. Living in an upside-down world as ambassadors for the king. Some of Paul's last words on this earth, 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now there are texts that require a lot of interpretive tools to figure out what they're saying. That's not one of them. All who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. It's a clear word from the Apostle Paul. Christianity isn't escape from suffering, it's an invitation into suffering. We looked at this text just last Sunday in in the book of Acts, Acts 14, where Paul writes this, rather Luke writes this. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, Pisidia. So these are places where they just hatched new fledgling communities of believers and they go back through those places and here's what they do. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. What an interesting discipleship curriculum that is. So you sit down with Paul and Barnabas and you say, what are you guys doing with new believers these days? <laughs> he says, here's what we did. We passed through Lystra and Iconium, Antioch, and here's what we did. Three-pronged discipleship program for brand new believers. We strengthened their souls, we encouraged them to continue in the faith, and we told them you're going to suffer until you get to the kingdom. Par for the course, you're going to experience these things, it's normal. The apostles didn't put suffering in the small print hoping nobody would read that stuff. They front loaded it, they told the congregations, they put it in all caps so there was no confusion. And they were saying effectively the suffering is real but so is the coming kingdom. Press on, we're marching to Zion. Uh, John Bunyan used to talk about how the Christian cannot walk in this world but that the wind stands in his face. There's that opposition, that pushback from every culture. And here in verse three through five, Paul is making it clear that persecutions and afflictions are not owing to a lack of faith. You see right there in verse three, their faith is growing abundantly. This isn't a lack of faith, this isn't a faith problem. It's a faith acknowledgement. It's a faith 
proof. We boast, he says, about your steadfastness in all your persecutions and the afflictions you're enduring. And look how, in in verse five, look how he brings God's commendation forward as a motivation to keep going. Right there in verse five. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. That is Paul wants that final prospect of the affirmation and commendation of God the Father ringing in their ears now. I remember as a kid playing baseball, Little League Baseball, I'd get out there and I'd get behind the plate, nervous as anything. They called me baggy pants because my pants didn't fit right. They didn't have pants small enough for me. And so I'd, I'd hear people yelling baggy pants and I'd hear they're yelling, hey, bada, 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 all the stuff that they've been doing for generations and generations. The catcher's talking smack in my ear, trying to get in my head. Parents are yelling at their kids out there, look alive. Just chaos, just voices everywhere. And one voice would just cut right through it. And it was my dad's. And he would just be shouting, hands in the chain link fence, hey, make him pitch, make him throw strikes. Good eye, son. Right, that it just broke through all the chaos. And that's the sense in which what Paul wants these believers, these afflicted believers to hear above the den, above the chaos of affliction and persecution. He wants them to hear the prospect of God the Father shouting, worthy of the kingdom that you might be counted worthy of the kingdom. What an affirmation. Are we listening as believers? Are we listening for that affirmation? Don't be more spiritual than the Bible. We ought to listen for the affirmation of God the Father. You know the first voice of God the Father in the Gospels comes bellowing out of heaven when his son comes up out of the waters of baptism. And what does he say? This is my son my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He thunders his affirmation of his son. That's that's our God, that's our father. We need to hear that affirmation. How many believers have we known? How many believers have I known and gone to their hospital rooms and heard in their hearts and even on their lips the one thing they wanted to hear more than anything else on earth? Well done good and faithful servant. That's not egotism. It's called sonship. They're wired to hear that from God, their father. You you play free association with this culture and you say Christ follower. What does the culture say to us? Christ follower, ignorant. Christ follower, get a life. Christ follower, bigot, self-righteous, haters. You play word association from 2 Thessalonians chapter one, you say Christ follower, Paul says afflicted, verse four. Christ follower, enduring, verse four. Christ follower, worthy, verse five. Christ follower, his, verse 10. His, mine, God says mine over his people, his afflicted, suffering people. Suffering, friends, is an evidence of belonging to God, but there's not just suffering, there's salvation. Return of Jesus brings final judgment and salvation. Look at verse six. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when? So when does the relief come? 
When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony was believed. In our culture, we have no problem talking generally about God's love. And we can even allow vague assertions about God's justice, but we have no stomach for God who inflicts vengeance. And we're quick to say we shouldn't avenge ourselves it's not good. We're right to say we shouldn't avenge ourselves. But Romans 12, 19, in Romans 12, 19, God doesn't say don't avenge yourselves because vengeance is wrong. He says don't avenge yourselves because vengeance is mine. He inflicts vengeance. But when we read the Bible as a whole, we discover the Bible doesn't portray the unbelieving world around us in a uniform way. So there are metaphors strung throughout the Bible describing the fallenness of the world. Sometimes the descriptions of the unbelieving world around us are descriptions that evoke pity. They evoke compassion. The world is blind. The world is lost. The world, they're enslaved. They're trapped in sin. They don't know which way is up. So they're metaphors that are evocative of compassion and burden. But that's not the only metaphor that exists in the Bible about unbelievers. Other times it features this active, high-handed defiance against God. They have exchanged the truth for a lie. They love darkness rather than light. Romans 1, faithless, foolish, heartless, ruthless. Here in our text in verse 8, a people who do not obey the gospel, refuse to obey the offer of clemency from the king, will not obey the gospel. Friends, future ministers, we do this world no service when we mute the channels that speak of God's judgment, when we neglect truth that permeates the whole story of the Bible, the entire narrative arc of the biblical story, namely God opposes the proud on every page of the Bible and God gives grace to the humble on every page of the Bible. That's why Luther said the grace is like water, it runs to the lowest place. Get low and you'll find grace there. God opposes the proud. Look, we can accent, in our culture, we can accent that God is a gracious and merciful king. And we can say that to an unbelieving culture until we're blue in the face. And we should keep saying that to an unbelieving culture until we're blue in the face. God is a gracious and merciful king. But let's not be surprised when many, some, perhaps even many say, I'm glad he's gracious and merciful. It's the king part I'm not okay with. You lost me at king. Second Thessalonians is fallen humanity. Chapter one, it's fallen humanity with its true colors shining through. God is not going to come to bring judgment down on a world that is merely lost. He comes on that day to a world of rebels who have taken up arms against his sovereign rule on the planet. And how different how sobering this text is, how different the second coming of Jesus is to his first coming. When 
Jesus Christ, the Son of God, breaks through the eastern skies. When 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 6 through 10, shows up in real history, no one on the planet will be singing infant holy, infant lowly. We have have moved past the metaphors that were there in the incarnation of rejection and lowliness and poverty and burp cloths and drummer boys and we have trumpets roaring. At his return, we will see him in all of his glory. In his first coming, in the first advent, there's, there's Harry, he's fumbling around with maps, he's breaking open fortune cookies, trying to find out, okay, where is he gonna come from? Look, when he comes again, no one on earth will wonder where he is. The earth will convulse, it will shake, trumpets will sound, the dead in Christ will rise. It will be the most reverence charged moment in the history of the world. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign to the four corners of the planet. It's gonna be awesome. And the images here are awesome images, jaw-dropping images. Mighty angels, verse seven. Flaming fire, verse eight. Inflicting vengeance, verse eight. Eternal destruction, verse nine. The glory of his might. Christian friend, were it not for the gospel, that day would be utterly terrifying. And yet the irony in this text is right next to these metaphors of angels and fire and vengeance is he comes to grant relief to his persecuted saints. This is how the New Testament spells relief. God putting down injustice in the return of Jesus Relief for persecuted believers. How? How does that make any sense? How can sinners like you and me know relief at the arrival of a holy judge of all the earth? And that, really, that question really brings us right to the heart of the gospel. At the end of history, so when the curtain comes down on history as we know it, justice will have come in absolute fullness, not once, but twice. And I don't mean the second coming, and the great flood, because if the great flood was absolute justice, Noah wouldn't have been in the ark, he would have been bobbing in the water with everybody else. That wasn't the ultimate reigning down of God's justice. Full justice is coming to this world in the future, but once it comes, it will have already come before on a hill outside Jerusalem where Jesus hung between earth and heaven and he absorbed the full impact. He inhaled the infinite justice of the wrath of God against our sin. The holy God came, as it were, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on our substitute. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him, the great exchange, power of grace. This is what shields us from coming wrath. It's the glory of the gospel. This is our salvation. This is, this is the heart of Christian thinking, the Christian message for the world. And holding these truths together is gonna keep us from wasting our lives. It's gonna keep us from building churches with wood, hay, and stubble. It's gonna keep us from the the, the trinkets of ministry and the gimmicks of ministry. It will sober us up. It will give us joy and the blessed hope. 
This is the key to effective ministry. Richard Baxter, long time ago, reformed preacher. He talked about the gravity of this, and he said, I preached as if never sure to preach again as a dying man to dying men. There was a gravity about the ministry. So Paul talks about suffering, assures us of final salvation, but he doesn't end there. He he connects it to mission, suffering, salvation, and mission. Look at verse 11 and 12. To this end, we always pray for you that, here's the prayer, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. To what end? so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's that word worthy again. And yet it's a little bit different the way that it's used. So God doesn't wait for us to be worthy of the kingdom. God is active in this. He's testing, he's proving our faith, he's working within us, Paul says in Philippians, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He's he's on the scene, he's changing us. So it's not this, this pick yourself up by your bootstraps and live the Christian life for goodness sake. Stop being the way that you've been these past 10 years. It's not just this super will-driven, resolution-driven faith. It's grace-motivated, propelled by the cross, propelled by what we've seen in the glory of Jesus. It's not God saying, hey, Matt, get it in gear. Just wait for you. He's working in our hearts to make us more like Jesus, faithfully moving us. I'm so glad for this truth. I'm so glad. He doesn't just call us to walk in a manner worthy of the call. He is making us worthy of his calling, that he may make you worthy of his calling. Wait, so you, you might be thinking, So he's the one who's saying that he's going to count us worthy before it's all over, and then here we're learning that he is making us worthy here in the process. That sounds like a circular fallacy. You can call it circular. I call it awesome. (laughs) The New Testament calls it grace. It's the Christian story. See, the language here, Paul Paul prays that God may fulfill every resolve. I love that. Every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. You're not fighting alone. You're not striving for godliness alone. You're not witnessing by yourself any instinct. I hear, I read this text, and I feel like the Lord is saying over my soul, any instinct, Matt, any leaning forward, I'm there. You ready to love your neighbors and meet them, show them my grace? I'm there. You need new strength, you're walking through deep waters in your marriage, every work of faith, every resolve for good. You wanna move to North Africa to share Jesus Christ? I'm there, let's do this. Every instinct, every work of faith, God is making it possible. How much this must have encouraged and emboldened this suffering church in Thessalonica. Living in light of the day of Christ means both comfort and hope on the one hand, and aggressive forward mission for his sake in all nations on the other. And the reward that that awaits us is so worth it. Look at chapter two, verse 13. Just skip ahead. Chapter two, verse 13 and 14. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel. To what end? so that you may obtain the glory 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is the reward we experience at the consummation of all things but obtaining the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ? Who even knows what that means in its fullness? I mean, can we even begin to grasp what that might look like? We get the shape of this from the other apostles as well as what Paul is writing here, that the shape of the life of the Christian is suffering first, then glory. Shame in the eyes of the world, honor at the Father's throne for all eternity. I served for 10 years at church in New Orleans with a pastor who was in his 70s and he used to always introduce himself as old man. So as soon as he would just stick his hand out, old man Davidson, that's my name. He had been in ministry for many, many years. There was just always a continues to be, just a vibrancy about his faith. And when he preaches, he's just so energetic and full of of life. And I only saw him in the 10 years that I worked alongside him, I only saw him tear up, I think twice while he was preaching. Many other kinds of emotions, but I think I only saw him tear up twice. And on both occasions, he was quoting the same text of scripture, the text which he holds to be the five greatest words in the entire Bible, Revelation 22, 4 they shall see his face. And he just lit up. Every time he quoted that verse, he just lit up. We will obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What an awesome thought that is. I remember driving home when our kids were really young to now they're 18, 15, and 12, when Hunter, our oldest, was probably three or four, I would drive home and I'd call Paula uh, on the way home, just say, hey, I'm, I'm coming, I'll be there in 10, 15 minutes, you need me to pick something up, whatever. So just calling and I said, hey, put Hunter on the phone and Hunter's talking to me and uh, he said, when are you gonna be home? You know, and three minutes later, when are you gonna be home? I'm stuck in traffic in New Orleans. And I said, look, I'll, I'll call you back and, um, and then maybe we can try this. Maybe when I call you back, we can count down from 10 and maybe I'll arrive right when we hit zero. And so he's like, okay, you know, so I called him back when I'm on the street. He doesn't know I'm on the street. I called him back. I said, hey, Hunter, okay, let's just try this and see if this works. Um, why don't you go to the front window and just pull back the shade? And so he's, you know, he's this high. He goes to the front window, he's pulling back the shade, and I'm driving, and I said, let's start counting down from 10. 10, 9, I'm like slowing down, speeding up so I can nail this, right? Because the, the goal is... I could either blow it in a major way or this could be the hugest win of my dad life, right? <laughs> and so I'm slowing down. I got five houses left. Can I make it in four seconds? You know, so three, two, and when we said one, we were looking at each other. There he is, this tall, looking out the window, and I was magical. <laughs> he just couldn't believe at the number one we were looking directly at it, just smile spread across his face. I come inside, get a hug. He's like, let's do that again tomorrow. Of course, that's the way of children. So you have to do it over and over every single day. Uh, And so then we did it with Hunter and then we did it with Will because it was so fun for Hunter and then we did it with Ellie and without them having any pre-written script or any knowledge of what the other ones did, they did exactly the same thing when they saw me. Wonder, joy, elation, awe. And the more I think about the amazement that I saw in their eyes, the more I am convinced that the longing eye of the believer toward the return of Jesus 
is a huge part of the New Testament vision for living the Christian life with joy, running the race with perseverance, and engaging in mission for the glory of God. It's a key. Convinced nothing will have a more profound impact on the way we live in this world. Nothing will have a more profound impact on the way that we minister in the church. Nothing will have a more profound impact on the way we witness in the world than to do so in light of the cross of Christ and the return of Jesus. Let me pray. And I'm just gonna pray this text over you. May our God make you worthy of his calling and fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.